Do you know that certain peptides can benefit those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's? If you want to learn more about how peptides can help with thyroid autoimmunity and other chronic conditions, then you'll want to check out the brand new Peptide Summit hosted by Dr. Jenny Flagar. In fact, peptides play a huge role in helping Dr. Jenny overcome her Hashimoto's condition. To register for the free Peptide Summit, visit SayMyThyroid.com forward slash peptides. Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and in episode number seven, I discussed the four categories of triggers, and in this episode, I will focus on food triggers. While it's true that food isn't a trigger in everyone, in some people, eliminating certain foods can make a big difference. And even if food isn't a trigger, there is no question that you still need to eat an anti-inflammatory diet in order to regain your health. Anyway, in this episode, I'll not only cover some food triggers you probably are already familiar with, but I also might mention a few that will surprise you. And so let's get started. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. Welcome back to the Save My Thyroid podcast. This is Dr. Eric Osansky, and in this episode, I'm going to discuss food triggers and Graves' disease. So let's go ahead and discuss some of the common food triggers. Of course, there is gluten, as well as dairy. Corn is also a potential trigger, as well as soy and salt. And I'll be discussing all these a little bit later. So how about sugar, eggs, nightshades, and caffeine? Are these considered to be triggers? Well, I don't think that they are direct triggers of autoimmunity, of autoimmune conditions such as Graves' disease. But without question, sugar can cause a lot of problems. Nightshades can be inflammatory in some people. Eggs can also be problematic in some people. And some people also have issues with caffeine. And once again, I'll talk more about these foods a little bit later. So how do you find food triggers? So I recommend an elimination reintroduction diet. And the AIP diet, which is the autoimmune paleo diet, this serves as an elimination diet. So essentially, you want to eliminate especially the common allergens, but even some of these other foods I mentioned, such as nightshades, eggs, if you're following an AIP diet, and then you would slowly reintroduce them back one at a time. So you would eliminate them for a period of, let's say, 30 to 90 days and then reintroduce certain foods one at a time. Some practitioners will recommend food sensitivity testing instead of an elimination diet. And food sensitivity is an option. It's just not completely accurate. And without question, there are some labs that are better than other labs. But still, I have gone with an elimination diet for years. So food sensitivity testing, I can't say I never do. But I'll use food sensitivity testing if Let's say if an elimination diet doesn't reveal the food triggers, then I might turn to food sensitivity testing. And just keep in mind that food isn't a trigger in everyone. So food is important. You need to eat an anti-inflammatory diet consisting of whole healthy foods. But this doesn't mean that food is a trigger in every single person with Graves' disease. 
Also, keep in mind that not all food sensitivities are food triggers. And by this, I mean that just because someone has a negative reaction to a certain food doesn't mean that it will trigger a condition such as Graves' disease. That being said, such a food potentially can cause gut inflammation and might prevent someone from healing. So I want to briefly mention five reasons why gluten should be avoided, especially while restoring your health. So reason number one is because gluten is a common allergen. Reason number two, gluten is a potential trigger of autoimmunity. Reason number three is gluten cannot be completely digested. Reason number four is because gluten causes an increase in intestinal permeability in everyone. Once again, an increase in intestinal permeability is also known as a leaky gut. And this is based on research, I believe it was 2015, that that showed that gluten can cause a leaky gut in everyone. So it's not just a concern in people with Graves' disease. And reason number five, you should focus on eating whole healthy foods. Now, some might wonder, can you reintroduce gluten later on after someone has restored their health? And this really is up to the person. This is something I could discuss in future episodes. But I will say since being in remission, I've been in remission from Graves since 2009. And for the most part, I avoid gluten. But I can't say that I've avoided gluten 100% since 2009. But it is something that I do make an effort to avoid most of the time. So one question you might have is, can eating a small amount of gluten cause inflammation or a leaky gut or both? Because what some people will wonder is if they could have some gluten every now and then, even when restoring their health. So again, after restoring your health, it's a little bit of a different story and it depends on the person. But I think everybody, while trying to restore their health, really wants to be strict with gluten because in some people, the answer is yes. Sometimes eating a small amount of gluten can cause inflammation and or a leaky gut. So let's briefly discuss some of the testing options for gluten. So you can test for gliadin antibodies, and you could do this at most labs, such as a LabCorp or Quest Diagnostics or another lab. You could also do a full celiac panel. So if you do a test for gliadin, and if it's positive, that doesn't confirm celiac disease. There are other markers related to celiac disease, such as transglutaminase, and there's also endomycial antibodies. There are some practitioners who believe that everyone with an autoimmune condition should test for celiac disease if they're eating gluten. If you're not eating gluten, the test will come back negative. If you have avoided gluten for a prolonged period of time, then you should expect a negative result. But if someone's eating gluten, some practitioners would recommend for everyone with an autoimmune condition to test for celiac disease just because someone with Graves' disease or another autoimmune condition is more likely to develop a different autoimmune condition such as celiac disease. Another example of a test is Cyrix Labs, array number three, which is also called their wheat gluten proteome reactivity and autoimmunity panel. It's a really good test, probably the most comprehensive test out there for gluten, at least the most comprehensive test I know of. It is kind of pricey though. So I usually just tell people to avoid gluten. And if someone's eating gluten, again, you might want to do a celiac panel, but I can't say that everyone needs to do the Cyrix Labs testing. And honestly, most of my patients don't do the Cyrix Labs testing. So is the problem really with gluten? First of all, someone might have a wheat allergy, which is not exactly the same as a gluten sensitivity. So an allergy is, I don't want to get 
too complex here, but Ig analogy is IgE mediated, where sensitivity is IgG. And IgE typically involves an immediate response, usually within a few seconds or a few minutes, whereas the sensitivity is frequently a delayed response, could be hours and sometimes a few days. So it is possible for someone to have a wheat allergy, but they might be fine with other sources of gluten, such as rye and barley. And then there are some people who need to avoid grains altogether. So it might not be a gluten problem, it might be a grain problem. And there are some practitioners who will recommend for everyone with an autoimmune condition, not only Graves' disease, but all autoimmune conditions to avoid grains. And if you're following a strict AIP diet, a strict autoimmune paleo diet, then you will be avoiding grains because grains is not a part of this diet. Grains also is not a part of a regular paleo diet. So grains are also high FODMAP foods, which can also be a problem. So I'm not going to get into detail here, but that's another potential issue. It might not be the problem with gluten, but it might be because it's the, the high FODMAPs is giving someone problems, especially if someone has a condition such as SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And then some wonder if the problem is not with gluten, but with glyphosate, because at least in the United States, the crops are sprayed with wheat. And so glyphosate can cause a lot of problems. And again, I will cover glyphosate in a different episode, but there are some people who will go to a different country and they will eat wheat, they will eat gluten, and they'll do perfectly fine. But when they eat wheat in the United States or another type of gluten, another source of gluten in the United States, they have problems. So that brings up the question, is it is a problem really with the wheat or is it with the gluten? Or is it the glyphosate? And there's other theories like hybridization, which again, I'm not going to get into here. But glyphosate, I think, is a big problem. And I think you want to do both, honestly, is to try to minimize or really completely avoid gluten, once again, while you're restoring your health, at least. And then also try to minimize your exposure to glyphosate. And you could accomplish this by eating mostly organic. That doesn't mean you will 100% eliminate the glyphosate, but it will greatly reduce your exposure. And so why should dairy be avoided? So like gluten, dairy is a common allergen and casein, which is a protein of dairy, this cross-reacts with gluten and this can result in the gliadin antibodies I discussed earlier. So essentially dairy can cause gluten antibodies. And this includes not only milk, but also yogurt, cheese, kefir, and whey. So how about butter and ghee? Well, butter and ghee doesn't have a whole lot of casein, especially ghee. Many people do fine with butter and or ghee. But if someone, again, if someone is following a strict autoimmune paleo diet, let's say, or even a strict paleo diet, I would say to take a break from dairy. It doesn't mean that you can't potentially reintroduce dairy in the future. That's up to the person. Some practitioners, just like they recommend to avoid gluten permanently, some will say that all their autoimmune patients should avoid dairy as well on a permanent basis. Again, I've been in remission since 2009 and I can't say that I've completely avoided dairy, especially when I have pizza. When I have pizza, it's usually a gluten-free pizza, but I can't say it's a dairy-free pizza, even though there are dairy options like the diet cheese. But just to be transparent, I usually don't have dairy-free pizza when I have pizza. So four additional reasons to avoid conventional cow's milk. First of all, growth hormone is commonly added to cow's milk, and cow's milk also can contain estrogens as well. And heating the milk, which is known as pasteurization, this decreases many of the nutrients such as vitamin B1, B2, folate, 
B12, vitamin C, and vitamin E. Homogenization changes the physical structure of milk fat, and because of this, it might alter the health properties of milk. And then cow's milk, along with other types of dairy, has a high insulin index, which means that it causes a high insulin response. So these are four reasons why you want to avoid dairy, and especially cow's milk. How about other types of dairy? So some will ask, is it okay to drink raw milk? Or is it okay to drink milk from another animal, such as a goat or a sheep? Many people do find what raw milk as well as what other types of milk, but it really does depend on the person. If you're following a strict paleo or AIP diet, once again, I would say all dairy should be avoided, even if it's raw milk or milk from a goat or sheep or or camel or another animal. And the problem is there hasn't been as much research on these types of milk Although it does appear that the insulin index is similar to cow's milk. So the insulin index is similar or the same. But health benefits, I would say in the future, if you do decide to reintroduce dairy, if you're going to eliminate dairy and then eventually reintroduce it, I think these other types of milk are healthier, like raw milk, which I know you can't get in every single state, but raw milk is something to consider. Or maybe, again, milk from a goat or a sheep. And then there's beta casein A1 versus A2. So cow's milk consists of both casein and whey protein, and cow's milk consists of approximately 80% casein, so there's a lot of casein, and there are different types of casein in dairy cows. The most common forms of beta casein in dairy cattle breeds are A1 and A2, and so beta casein variant A1 yields the bioactive peptide called beta caseomorphin 7 or BCM7, and this may play a role in the development of certain chronic health conditions. And some people react to beta casein A1, but do perfectly fine when consuming beta casein A2. So that's why some health food stores will sell A2 milk, and some people do perfectly fine on this. But once again, if you're following a strict paleo or autoimmune paleo diet, I would say to avoid all dairy, including A2 dairy. So now let's discuss some other allergens, other other foods to potentially avoid. Starting with corn. So eating corn can cause a similar response as gluten. Research has shown that the proteins from corn can potentially cause a celiac-like immune response. So anyone who eats processed foods regularly most likely is being exposed to corn. It seems like it's everywhere. Some different names. It's, it's It's not always listed as corn on the ingredients. Caramel, confectioner's sugar, hydrolyzed vegetable protein, Maltodextrin is commonly corn-based. There are other types like tapioca-based maltodextrin, but if it just says maltodextrin, probably corn-based. Modified food starch, xanthan gum as well. And then also another thing to keep in mind, most corn in the United States is genetically modified. So if you eliminate corn and eventually reintroduce it, you want to try to make sure that you're eating organic corn. How about soy? So once again, most soy is also genetically modified. And many people are sensitive to soy. And just like corn, many packaged foods include soy ingredients. So you definitely want to read the ingredients carefully. And a few studies have shown that soy has goitrogenic properties. So goitrogenic means that it can potentially inhibit thyroid activity. And so if someone has hyperthyroidism, they might think that's good. But for the other reasons, I wouldn't say it's a load up on soy. So even if soy were to help with that, were to help to lower thyroid hormone levels, and there's no evidence 
I've seen where it helps with hyperthyroidism, but because of the other reasons that I'm discussing here, I would still avoid soy. And then phytic acid, this is an anti-nutrient that is found in grains, nuts, seeds, as well as legumes, including soybeans. And studies show that the phytates in soy can lead to a decrease in iron and calcium absorption, which is not a good thing. However, I will say that soaking and fermenting soy can significantly decrease the levels of phytic acid. This brings up the question, is eating some organic fermented soy okay, such as miso, tempeh, natto? While restoring your health, I would say to refrain from consuming soy. But once someone is in a state of remission, I can't say that they absolutely need to avoid soy forever. I mean, fermented soy does have health benefits. And once again, soaking and fermenting soy can significantly decrease the levels of phytic acid. So in the future, maybe, but while restoring your health, I would say no, especially if someone has, a, if they have a known soy allergy or sensitivity, the problem is you don't always know. So if you have a soy allergy sensitivity and you know it, then even organic fermented soy should be avoided. But once again, the problem with these foods is with sensitivities, you don't always experience symptoms. And Sometimes that elimination reintroduction diet will bring out some symptoms. So someone might be eating a certain food and it might feel fine, whether it's gluten, dairy, corn, soy, and then they reintroduce or or they eliminate the food for one to three months, let's say, and then they reintroduce foods one at a time. And then certain foods they realize causes problems. And it's not that the elimination process made them sensitive to that food. They were sensitive all along but their body was so inflamed that they just weren't reacting. But once they eliminated that food and the inflammation reduced, and then they reintroduced the food, then the symptoms became more prominent and more, more noticeable. Or, or in some cases, again, they weren't noticeable to begin with in the past. So let's discuss nightshades. So these include tomatoes, eggplant, white potatoes, most types of peppers. And these foods contain compounds that can negatively affect the health of the gut, So yes, they of course do also have some health benefits too, but ideally while trying to restore your health, at least initially I would say avoid these foods, definitely if if you're following an autoimmune paleo diet. So as far as the compounds, some of these compounds and nightshades include lectins, alkaloids, glycoalkaloids. You might wonder, does everyone need to avoid nightshades? As I just mentioned, if someone's following a strict AIP diet, I would say yes. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to have a negative reaction to nightshades, but to be on the safe side, I would say avoid these foods. Because the same could be said with anything we're discussing. Some people might be fine with corn or even dairy or maybe even gluten, even though gluten, as I mentioned, can potentially cause a leaky gut in everyone. But I would say try to take a break from nightshades. doesn't mean you need to avoid them permanently. And then as far as when nightshades can be reintroduced, Sarah Ballantyne, she has different stages of reintroduction and nightshades are definitely not in the earlier stages as far as when they should be reintroduced. But of course, everyone is different. Some people will choose to reintroduce them sooner, but I would say certain foods like tomatoes, eggplants, you know, even peppers, white potatoes, maybe reintroduce them later and focus on other foods. How about sugar? So although sugar doesn't directly trigger thyroid autoimmunity, Eating a lot of sugar frequently can cause blood sugar imbalances, and you should avoid refined sugars when, while restoring your health. And once in remission, of course, you still should minimize your consumption of refined sugars. 
And also, it's not just blood sugar imbalances, but eating a lot of sugar can also be a factor in the overgrowth of candida. So candida is normal in our body. We just don't want too much and sugar will feed the candida. So yet another reason you want to minimize sugar and not just refined sugar, even healthier sugars you could overdo with. But when you're restoring your health, I would say try to completely avoid refined sugars and maybe minimal healthier sugars, natural sugars like honey, for example, 100% maple syrup in small amounts. And then of course, I should also mention fruit as well eating some fruit and everybody's different, but I wouldn't overdo it with fruit. Sometimes I'll see people eat four or five servings of fruit per day. So I would focus on eating more vegetables and fruits, maybe having a couple of servings at the most of fruit per day. Let's talk about salt. So a high salt diet increases TH17 cells, which are associated with autoimmunity. So the key here is moderation. If someone is eating a lot of package and processed foods, then there's a good chance that they are consuming high amounts of sodium chloride, which can potentially cause problems. If someone eats mostly whole foods and they add some high quality sea salt to the food, again, not adding too much, maybe like a half teaspoon to a teaspoon per day. So this shouldn't trigger autoimmunity or exacerbate the autoimmune response. So again, the concern if someone's eating a lot of packaged foods, even if it's healthier packaged foods, like if it's organic, gluten-free, it still most likely has a good amount of sodium in the foods. Of course, you could read the label and see, but if you're adding some, some sea salt most of the time, most cases, especially something like a Celtic sea salt, for most people, that would be okay. All right, let's go ahead and discuss caffeine. So the good news is that caffeine has been reported to decrease the production of both TH1 and TH2 cytokines, and these have been associated with autoimmunity. However, most people have adrenal problems, at least most people I work with, and I certainly had my share of adrenal problems when I dealt with Graves' disease, and caffeine can have a negative effect on adrenal health. The good news is many people are eventually able to reintroduce coffee sooner than later. Of course, there are other sources, but a lot of people who listen to this are focused on the coffee. They don't want to give up their coffee. There are some people when following, let's say, autoimmune paleo diet, they have no problems avoiding gluten and dairy. It's the coffee that's the struggle. And if you happen to be a slow metabolizer of caffeine, which means that you break down and excrete caffeine slowly, then it's a good idea to minimize your consumption of caffeine permanently. And you might know by symptoms, if you feel wired when you have caffeine, that's a good indication that you're a slow metabolizer. You could also do some genetic testing. Genetic testing is available. And so according to the research, slow metabolizers of caffeine have an increased risk of having a heart attack and impaired fasting glucose. So yet another reason to be cautious about consuming caffeine, especially in larger amounts, especially if you are a slow metabolizer. Let's go ahead and discuss eggs. So even though eggs are nutrient-dense, they also are a common allergen. And having an IgG sensitivity to eggs is more common than having a true allergy. So remember I mentioned earlier, an IgG sensitivity means you're having more of a delayed reaction where a true allergy, you're having almost an immediate reaction. So compounds in egg whites can have a negative effect on gut health, specifically lysozyme. And some people, as a result, they might have problems eating egg whites, but they might do okay eating egg yolks. And as a result, when someone is following an elimination diet and they've eliminated eggs, when they reintroduce eggs, they might want to start with the egg yolks. And if all goes well, then eat the whole egg. As far as eliminating eggs, I recommend avoiding eggs altogether for at least one month. 
I would say three months, even better. And if you want to reintroduce eggs, again, probably best to first start out with eating egg yolks and then eventually reintroduce the egg whites. So let's go ahead and summarize what I discussed here. So common food triggers such as gluten, dairy, corn, soy, these should be avoided when trying to restore your health. And too much salt can increase TH17 cells. So I mentioned that some sea salt, some natural sea salt, such as Celtic sea salt, should be okay with most people. But if you're eating a lot of packaged foods, a lot of processed foods, then you very well might be getting too much salt and that can make it difficult to recover. And in order to find food triggers, I recommend an elimination diet, and then eventually you'll reintroduce the foods that you eliminate. And some practitioners recommend food sensitivity testing, but again, I stick with the elimination diet. Every now and then I'll do food sensitivity testing. I can't say I never do it, but uh, yeah, that's, that's the approach I take. And then eating a small amount of gluten can, in some people, cause inflammation. Some people might be able to get away with eating small amount of gluten, but I wouldn't take the chance. I would say while restoring your health to give it up completely. And then I mentioned gluten versus glyphosate, how maybe the problem is more with glyphosate, but I, I recommend to avoid both while restoring your health or try your best to avoid glyphosate because you're probably not gonna avoid it 100%, but try to eat organic whenever you can. And then nightshades, so I discussed nightshades, how they contain compounds that can negatively affect gut health and cause inflammation, not, not just the gut, but just in general cause inflammation as well. Caffeine, I mentioned how this can have a negative effect on adrenal health. So you might want to take a break from drinking coffee, for example, while trying to restore your health. Sometimes we have to negotiate. I can't say that 100% of my patients give up coffee. I would say ideally though, you want to do this. And then compounds and egg whites can have a negative effect on gut health, specifically lysozyme. And that's why when you reintroduce eggs, you want to ideally start with the egg yolk. And of course, this is assuming you eliminate eggs. So if you eliminate eggs for, let's say, one to three months and you reintroduce them in the future, then I would say to start with the egg yolks. And if all goes well, then you could try reintroducing the whole egg. All right. Well, that is all I want to discuss with regards to food triggers and Graves disease. I hope you found the information to be valuable and I look forward to catching you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And to get your free thyroid and immune health restoration action points checklist, visit SaveMyThyroidChecklist.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. During the episode, I mentioned that while I prefer an elimination diet to help detect food triggers, I also mention how I sometimes do food sensitivity testing if an elimination diet doesn't help find the food triggers. But I need to clarify, as once again, food isn't a trigger in everyone. And so I don't want you to think that if eliminating and reintroducing foods don't reveal any food triggers, that I jump to food sensitivity testing, as this usually isn't the case. On the other hand, if someone has done an elimination reintroduction diet along with some other testing and we're still looking for answers, then food sensitivity testing might be something I'll consider. I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, milk thistle, and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. 
To learn more about Hepatomune Supreme, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash liver support.